That is Simply Focus with Elvi Chani and Dominic Gilda. Hello and welcome back to the Simply Focus podcast, The Good Life Approach, your podcast for life and joy and ease. This is episode number 12. My name is Dominic Gilda. And I'm Elfie Chani. Hi there. We're today's hosts of this episode and we are super excited and honored to have Thorana Nelson with us today. Hello, Thorana. Hello. Thank you so much for being with us on Zoom today. And yeah, we're very much looking forward to our conversation with you. A few weeks, or actually it's already a month ago, we met yeah. in Santa Fe. Mm, it was fun. Yeah, it was so great to spend time with you and your wonderful husband, Victor Nelson, whom we will have on Zoom next week. So there's mm -hmm. another podcast coming up. Well, it was such a delightful afternoon and time with you. So we're still very, very grateful to have the chance to spend time with you, have the chance to have a conversation with you. And it was so inspiring and, and great. So it's very promising to have you here today. <laughs> I enjoyed our time together very much also. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. So Tharana, you have been practicing and teaching family therapy for over 30 years You're an emerita professor of family therapy in the Department of Family, Consumer and Human Development at the Utah State University. Yes. You are a clinical fellow and approved supervisor of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. And you're also doing the supervision trainings there. Yes, courses. Courses, They're online yeah. courses. O yeah. Online courses. Mm -hmm. And you're a founding member and were member of the board of directors for quite some time of the Solution yes. Focus Brief Therapy Association. And beside all of that, you still found time to write many, many books. So you're an author and co-editor of a lot of books, among others, the education and training in Solution Focus Brief Therapy, Solution Focus Brief Practices with Long-Term Users of Mental Health Services. I'm more than a label together with Joel Simon or the handbook of solution focused brief therapy clinical applications which you wrote together with Frank Thomas or doing something different and many many more so for our listeners you will find more about that in the resource section of our podcast and on our travels we met a lot of people and when we asked them well how did you get in touch with solution focus most of them they mentioned your name no so, yeah there were a lot of people who mentioned your name and uh, you were inspiring for them and so that wow. was uh, one thing that uh, we discovered uh, on our travels through the u.s well they not only said you inspired them but they had really lovely words for you so this is oh, also what we that's <laughs> that's lovely to hear that's amazing compliment oh wow so Therana, what fascinates you with solution focus i think uh, that's not an easy question for me to answer in some ways because there's it was different at different times but i think that the piece that comes through most Two things. One is my work was always more effective when I used solution-focused ideas. The future focus, looking for exceptions, those were just so very important. And the other thing was that it made my work so much more fun. In my training, I was trained to listen for family problems and to talk about family problems and to listen for more problems, particularly the really sordid kinds of, oh my gosh, there must have been trauma, there must have been something horrible. And I always left those sessions very discouraged. And then I don't remember what training it was that I had or reading that said you should always end a session looking up. I think maybe it was uh, functional family therapy that the end of a session should always be hopeful. It should always look, look more towards positive change. 
and that helped me a lot. And then, of course, that's solution focused. <laughs> that's what you do in solution focused work is you, you look for positive change. It doesn't mean that you're always positive about what's going on, but it means that you are looking for changes that are useful and helpful. Mm. So I think that's what fascinates me the most. That and the fact that I can use it in my own life so frequently. Yeah, that's what we see as well. <laughs> and I truly love you say there are so many things and it was different over time because you um, learned about solution focus in a time when it wasn't there, but it was actually about mm -hmm. to be developed. Yes, about the same time I was learning about being a therapist was when we actually read some of Steve's work uh, in my third year, I think, of, of my training program. So how did you meet Solution Focus and how did your fascination for Solution Focus emerge? The first time that I ever heard about it was uh, when I was a, a part of a, a group in Iowa where I was getting my training at the University of Iowa. And the state of Iowa Association for Family Therapy had invited Steve DeShazer to come for a conference. And so in our program, we started reading his work and became very interested in it, particularly the pre-session question. And then the organizer of that conference had to back out. He couldn't do it anymore and asked me to take over the conference. So of course, that meant that I had to read everything I could find by Steve DeShazer so that can I could... Can you just briefly say what the pre-session question was? Oh, sure. You can ask it when, at the first phone call or you can ask it in the first session, which is basically what has changed since the time of the first phone call. And you don't say what's changed in your problem or anything like that. It's just like what has changed, um, at least the way I do it. I don't actually remember what his wording was, but it was something like that. And uh, people always come up with positive change around the issue. The ports that claim that change is happening all the time, even before <laughs> sessions, it's yeah. happening in life. Well, the, the fact that they called is such a change. It's like, why did you call? Why now? Mm -hmm. And that, that used to be what horrible thing is happening in your life. But it has become more of what happened that led you to think that therapy would be helpful to you. And honoring the yeah. step the people did and do at this moment, right? Right. And that logically leads to, so what are you hoping to get out of therapy, which is the way we talked about it back then. So I got to know Steve at that conference. We had lunch together and I introduced him and that was very nerve wracking because I was a very young therapist. And then I had lunch with him. And one of the most amazing things was that I was doing therapy with a couple using Bowen family therapy. And he was behind the mirror with my supervisor, he had come in to observe us in the clinic. So I was doing this genogram. And later, my supervisor told me that Steve said to him, what's she doing? And my supervisor said, well, she's she's learning more about their background on the genogram. And Steve said, oh, and he got up and walked out. <laughs> and that just fascinated me because my first thought was, well, I don't like him. And then my <laughs> second thought was, what was he thinking? What was different? Wow. And so I did learn more about him. And then I continued reading to to some extent and watching uh, through the literature what was happening with solution focused work and how it was being used in Iowa with families. And then I got involved in a, a research project around women substance abusers. And we were testing model of couple therapy with women substance abusers. And the four of us who were involved in the clinical part of that project 
were all learning more about solution focused at the same time and had not included it in our approach. But as we were supervising the therapists who were doing the therapy, we all started using solution focused questions with them, mostly around the clinical work, which was, you know, when the when the client noticed or said something about how things were better, we all started focusing more on what was better wow. rather than what, you know, the 90% that was bad. We were focusing on the 10% that was better. And we had to have conversations about how we were going to formalize that in the research project, because as you know, with research, you have to use a manualized treatment. And, and so it was, it was very interesting to think about how we were going to do that. Well, at the same time, one of the researchers was Terry Trepper, who was later partnered with Yvonne Dolan, who was very close to Insu and Steve. By this time, I had moved on from Indiana, where I was doing all this work with them. I had moved to Utah. And I got this email saying, Steve wants us to get together and we're inviting you to join us. So it's like, it, what? How? You want me to fly to Chicago and do what? So I learned more about it and realized that Steve had said that he enjoyed doing trainings, but he enjoyed more of the conversations he had with trainers. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to do more of that. Cool. So that's when we, uh, they organized what we've called the Hammond Conversations. Mm -hmm. And I got to know Steve and Insu much better. I think we met three or four times before we started SFBTA. And the reason we started the association was because we all wanted to continue talking and we needed some sort of forum to do that. So we said, well, let's have conferences and then we can get together every year and talk. Mm. Oh, okay. And this so is that's, how the, the SFBTA conferences uh, yes. started. Yeah. The sole reason for starting the association was so that we could have these conferences. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first one was in 1993, I believe, in Loma Linda, California. And we learned a lot from that conference. And then we had one in Utah that I chaired mm -hmm. and uh, in Park City, which is a beautiful place place to visit. And then we've had one every year since then and been able to talk with people through those conferences. It's been wonderful. Mm, wow. wow. What I truly love about hearing how the conferences started is that you were using this friend power, which I well, so much <laughs> see. And it's, we often talk about, about how strong willpower is and we, need, we just need to do things, but coming together with like-minded people and exchange and inspire each other is, is such an amazing thing to do mm -hmm. and this for me is using the friend power of bringing this approach more to the world more into our lives which helps me actually a lot when when I go to conferences to be inspired by others and to move on with my work and, and keep on well, doing it. Yeah, it also shows that, well, there were a lot of people involved in the development of SFPT and uh, SFPTA. And I think for us, it's so great to have people like you on our podcast that we can really show how many people were with that and influenced each other, kind of this reciprocity, mutual influence. Well, that's the part that I don't talk about as much. I talk and I think a lot about the practices and, and so forth, but a huge part of all of that for me personally was being with these people mm. because I was feeling very isolated in Utah. Mm. And when they invited me to do this with Steve DeShazer, mm. you know, um, and he remembered me, Iowa City, out of the blue, he just said, 
Iowa City. It's like, yeah, that's where we met. And he said, hmm, I remember. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, but being able to be with, with people, like you say, who are like-minded, asking each other incredibly important questions like, what is SFBT? We've never figured this out. How do you know it's SFBT? Because we wanted to do more research. Yeah. So how do we know that it is or is not? Well, we know it when we see it around that and being with those people and then every year at the conference being with the same people and then um, deciding to start going to EBTA when Harry Corman who was doing the Momo conference and I don't even remember when that was wanted to have kind of a partnership between SFBTA and EBTA and since our conference was sort of modeled after theirs uh, we said sure and several of us went to Malmo and I got to meet even more wonderful interesting mm. like-minded people and since then every year mm. I've met more and more wonderful people and had more and more wonderful experiences and the fascination keeps on staying with you or keeps on growing absolutely there's always this kind of baseline of it's working, it's working, it's working. <laughs> and so whatever I'm doing, if I'm not sure what to do, I put Insu on my shoulder and say, or Steve, um, Steve's on my left shoulder and Insu's on my right shoulder. <laughs> and what's next? What? And, oh, okay, what's my goal? Um, what do I want? By listening, what do I think needs to happen next? And how do I help that? Mm. happens. So that's a huge part of the fascination, mm. uh, whether that's in therapy or supervision or training, or I try not to be a therapist when I'm talking with my friends and family, but sometimes I can kind of sneak in a little question mm. that helps them look at something a little differently. Mm -hmm. And then all I have to do is sit back and let them do their work. And that's what makes it fun and easy. I don't have to think about it. They do the work. And It's you just simple. listen for their brilliance. <laughs> I just listen for their brilliance and then, and then capture the piece of that brilliance that I think is going to help move us along even more. Yeah, I think that's the big thing. Listen and then select and then build on that. Uh, we see that in microanalysis, how this right. uh, makes conversations go on and, and kind of makes conversations go in the direction that we want that might be useful for our clients. So the listening part, as we mentioned in uh, episode number six, and also the building on it and choosing mm -hmm. those words or choosing those focuses that might be useful for them. Right. The, um, the formulation that the microanalysis people captured, it was like a light coming on for me. And I use it in my trainings, which are not just solution focused because I'm, the online teaching that I do is family therapy. So there are many different approaches that people are using. But this idea that you keep something of the brilliance <laughs> and you ignore something and then you add something is something that I use a lot in many, many different ways of what, what am I going to choose and what am I going to let go of? The letting go has been the hardest part for me. Mm -hmm. And That was a lesson I learned from Terry Trepper when uh, something happened that was not fun at a conference. And I said, well, what should I do? Because somebody had said something. And then I thought, how am I going to answer this person? How am I going to do this? And he said, why do you think you have to do something? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I can ignore that. Holding the idea very firmly in any kind of conversation that if it's really important, it'll come back up. Otherwise, I love that. Just ignoring something. And this is what we are so good in the therapy sessions or in coaching sessions or in, in whatever kind of conversation in a professional setting that's the obvious thing we listen for the brilliance and just transferring that to an everyday situation where you just showed i really love that 
Thank you. Well, and you, I've seen you use it with your daughter. <laughs> because when she's doing something that is not 100% okay, you have to figure out how to help shape yeah. her behavior without stifling, you know, the good parts. Yeah. And so, you know, you just ignore it. And then if she does it again, then you have to decide, now, is this a time when I have to say, that's not acceptable, you need to be doing this instead of that, or, you know, however you do it. But yeah, it's, it's great for everything. Yeah. Yeah. For solution folks, people who have been doing solution focus for quite a while, for them, it's uh, clear what we mean by ignoring. But people who have not yet uh, worked in a solution focused way, they might think that might be rude, but ignoring just means it's a deliberate choice of what we focus on and what we kind of leave out. And I think that's the important thing. Just what do we listen for? And what don't we kind of listen for? Don't we comment? And what don't we take with us in the conversation? What do we take with us in the conversation? It's a deliberate choice that we uh, well, try to make in our conversations. And I think this choice always has to be done because in a conversation, we never ever carry on everything. So no. the question is, which part do we carry on and which part creates an environment where change is more likely to happen in a direction we want to have it happen? And I think that's what makes us experts on conversation. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So let's come to very practical examples. You do supervision mm-hmm. and it's one, one of your main topics. So what is it that you especially like to pick there and what is it that you especially like to leave out and ignore? Well, it's a basic solution focus ideas, which is that when a therapist is showing me what they do um, on a video, I don't do live supervision so much anymore. When they're showing me what they do or when they're talking to me about what they do, again, I'm thinking of goals. What led you to decide to do that? What was happening? Uh, what did you hear from the client? I don't ever say, what did you hear from yourself? But it was more like, what was going on in your head? And then you, you did this other thing. So what was that about? I like to ask it in a very curious way. Not that way that, you know, parents sometimes will say to their children, what were you thinking? Um, <laughs> But more like, I'm curious, what were you thinking? What led you to do that? And to help them be very mindful about what they're doing. That's sort of very core of supervision is what theory are you using and are you using it the way that you you need to be using it? So so that's one of the, the things I pick up on that, that I want to keep. The, the parts that I don't want to keep are often a little more difficult because sometimes in supervision, I hear therapists talking about what they did or showing me what they did that is not congruent with their theory or that really does miss something very important. I'm thinking about a therapist who was telling me about a situation where a stepfather had grabbed his stepson who was sitting on the floor watching TV and he had, the stepfather had said, you need to get up and go to dinner now. And the stepson said, I'm watching TV. And the stepfather said, no, you have to go to dinner. And the stepson said, no, I'm not going to go to dinner. I'm watching TV. And so the stepfather grabbed him by his legs and pulled him down flat and then swung him around and his head hit the chair leg of the chair that he was leaning against. And the therapist picked up on the conversation about, I'm going to go to dinner. No, you're not going to go to, you know, whatever. And not the part about what, at least in the United States, is considered child abuse because he had done something and there was some damage. The son's head hit the chair leg. And and so I had to kind of step out of what some would consider solution-focused therapy and into solution-focused supervision in a responsible way to say, 
So how did you handle that part where the father swung the, the son around and he hit his head? And the therapist kind of looked at me and said, well, I suppose that wasn't a good idea. And I said, which? What you said or what the father did? And he said, both. Mm-hmm. He said, I should have done that. And I said, not necessarily. Because right now, at this moment, in therapy, the son is safe. What happened, happened, and we'll decide what to do about it. But right now, at the moment, I'm curious about what led you to do what you did in light of the fact that you had kind of missed that. So I was trying to lead the, the, the therapist into observations that sometimes are not, not good. And in fact, there's something going on on the SFT list right now about that sort of thing. So how do you do a future-oriented question about the miracle question yeah. when, uh, and I think the specifics are, and you're going to do what you usually do during the day and go to sleep tonight and when you wake up in the morning. And what if what they usually do is bad stuff? Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? And so I thought about it and I wasn't sure how I would respond. But then Alistair and some others came onto the list and said, I'm looking at the future, not the past. Mm -hmm. So whatever they usually do is nothing that I need to be concerned about right now. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that unless it presents a possibility of harm Mm -hmm. to somebody. Mm -hmm. And we can deal with that in a process. But otherwise I'm looking at the future. What does it include? And if they say, I wouldn't be doing those things anymore, then that's great. But that's not what we're aiming for. Mm -hmm. And what I love about uh, Alistair's version, and we very much agree with that, is that he doesn't mention the things that he doesn't like or doesn't want to pick up. He just mentions, you go to bed the way you usually do it. Kind of this this usual as a replacement of, of what behavior that we don't want to see. Right. We don't say things like, and you smoke your joint and you hit your kids and yeah. you drink too much. We don't, we don't say those things. We don't. There's no need to say that. Yeah. No, there is no need to say that. In fact, part of it, I was thinking, well, in some places, smoking a joint is okay. <laughs> who, who am I to decide unless somebody is being physically or emotionally abused? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not my judgment that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Rana, what makes you so passionate about supervision? And I can see you're passionate oh, about it. When oh, I'm yeah, talking. I am. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very passionate about supervision. Part of it, I think, is that, that I really like hearing therapists talk about what they do that's effective. Mm-hmm. I get discouraged when I hear therapists talking about things that aren't working for them. And they're kind of obvious to me that they're not working. So I like to instill that if it's working, keep doing it. If it's not working, do something different idea, which is something I learned early in my training. The MRI people used that in the 70s. And so I like to instill that in therapists so that they're doing, and this is a judgment, uh, so that they're doing more of what works for them and what I think is helpful to people. I don't think it's helpful to people to spend hours and hours and hours talking about abuse, their former abuse. If it's useful to them, great, but I'm not going to force it on them because I think it's a good idea. And so that's that's a lot of it is that I want to instill that idea. And the other part is that, um, and I've been told this, that when therapists have had good training, then they're able to do better therapy for more people. 
So I feel like I've touched more people mm -hmm. by being a supervisor. And now I'm a supervisor of supervision. Mm -hmm. So I'm mentoring people who are learning how to be supervisors. Mm -hmm. And so it casts the net even wider. And I, I guess I would say the same thing about the books. When I hear that the books have been useful, people have gotten ideas from the books that were useful. That just feels, ah, yes, I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's kind of how can we spread the word and how can we have an influence? And that's what we right. do with this leadership. Uh, we well realize that uh, when we can influence leaders to have solution focused conversations, exactly. and they have influence on many people, and they will, people kind of their employees will go home and they will have other conversations with their partners and so on. And it seems like the same, same idea if you're a supervisor of supervisors, then they will influence. Uh, their therapists who talk differently to their clients and they go home and do something different with their environment. So well, kind of, uh, yeah, it, leverage. I, I think, yeah, I like that. Um, mm. I think when you talk with Victor, you'll hear, well, you've heard some from his son about consultations mm. and coaching mm. and Victor does it in his consultation work. And so it's, it's just always interesting to hear how, something can be accomplished better and faster. And that also sometimes means cheaper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that when families can reach their goals faster, then they're paying me less money, which isn't always good for me. Um, <laughs> I have to find more clients. It's one of the downsides of solution-focused work. But it means they have more money available to do the kinds of things they want to do in their preferred future. And they very often just recommend um, you to other people, oh, yeah. I guess. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. I, well, my, I think all of my referrals were from satisfied clients and referral sources. Because I would do it. I just realized this, that when people said, I want to refer this client to you, and then they would start they're talking to me about the client's problem, I would say, what is your goal? What do you hope will happen in my work with these people. Mm -hmm. And so it changes immediately from all the sordid details of the client's life that I don't want to know unless the client wants to tell me. Mm -hmm. And it you know, takes it into a different direction that I think is it's more useful and more fun. Yeah. Um, we talked about um, supervising supervisors and also doing trainings with them. So uh, what is your focus with them and what is like you know when you go into training with them the the one thing you really want them to know after your trainings i consider them my clients and just as my work um, with direct supervision of therapists and my work as a therapist with clients or or consultations or whatever i do i focus on what it is the first person in front of me wants what's important to them and what's their future perfect what they want and what's important to them. This is something that I learned from Peter de Young, that what's important to them is something really that we need to listen for because we can connect that with so many things. So when I am supervising a supervisor, when I'm mentoring somebody who's learning how to be a supervisor, I focus on them and their process, their learning, their goals, their preferred future. Um, so when you feel really confident as a supervisor, when you feel like you're competent and confident, what will you be doing as a supervisor? One of the reasons for that is that I heard somebody talking one time 
as a supervisor. And I was just standing there and she turned to me and she said, you're a supervisor. And I said, yeah. She said, so what do you do when the therapist won't do what you tell them to do? And I didn't, I couldn't even process that because I had to think about, well, what would I tell my supervisee what to do? Well, maybe if they had to make a child abuse report, I would have to mentor them and help them learn how to do that and how to you know, help the family through that. But I couldn't even process mm-hmm. telling people what to do because it would be very flattering if they did therapy the way I told them how to do it. Yeah. Because, you know, but I don't, I don't really want people to, to be mini me's. I want them to do the work from their perspective, whether that's as a therapist, as a supervisor, or as a supervisor of supervisors. So I'm always focusing on them rather than the case. It's so easy to get caught up in the details of the case. Mm. Yeah. And it's easy for me to say, oh, this is what I would do with the case. But that's not my business at this point. That's the business of the therapist and the supervisor. My business is what's the supervisor doing. So it's like, so what do you feel good about that you did this week with this particular therapist? What do you think that was really helpful in your work with the therapist this week? How did you come up with that idea? What were you thinking? What will you do next? What does a successful outcome look like to you? It's very much solution-focused supervision at all levels, Mm -hmm. even if they're not using solution-focused practices themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of them pick up on the solution focused practices. It's kind of By the living example of exactly. what good it's, and just good. Right. Very clever right. way, actually. Yes. So you don't want to talk about how I screwed up on that situation. Oh no, no. We all we all make mistakes. You know it. We know it. So if you want to talk about what you will do differently in a situation in the future, fine. But we're not going to deconstruct that. That's not fun. If it's not fun, I don't want to do it. <laughs> That's good. And when we met in Santa Fe, you. You told us about your passion for kind of the systemic component in solution oh, yes. focus. How, how does that view influence your work with the supervisors? Well, it's always there for me because that was my original training. And it's what uh, I knew that I wanted to be a therapist, but I didn't know anything about systemic thinking until I got into my master's program. And then the first lecture that my professor gave on it was like, oh, yes. Oh, of course it all makes sense. Whatever I do affects everybody else around me in some small or large way. And what they do affects me. And it's not just about what's going on in the head. It's, mm. it's about what's going on around people. I feel very strongly about the power of relationships this friend power that you're talking about, Elsie. It's the power of relationships to help people heal mm-hmm. is just demonstrated all the time. And it was hugely important to Insu. See it a little less with Steve, although it was always apparent with Steve when he said things like the best friend question, what would your best friend notice? Because that's not just getting outside yourself and looking at yourself from a different perspective. It's forcing people to think about what the other person is thinking. Mm-hmm. And how what what I do affects this person and that affects what they see about me and what they see about me affects my thinking. It's very reciprocal, very recursive, very circular. And it's just a part of who I am. I I don't know how to see things in a linear way anymore. Although sometimes when I'm having a problem, I want to blame other people for it. And then I have to kind of remind myself that I'm a part of whatever it is that's going on. I also see that these questions help a lot to support people experiencing themselves more in relation to others than just, you know, figuring out their own emotions and feelings and perceive themselves as, as people in relationship 
relationship with their environment. With yes, right. Yeah. It was very popular in the 70s for people to go inside, and it still is in some place, including Santa Fe. It's still very popular for people to really examine themselves and do what we would call navel gazing. And my thought about that very soon was, well, if all you do is gaze at your navel, that's all you're ever going to see. Mm. And frankly, that's not very pretty, so <laughs> I wasn't interested in that. But the idea of the relationship questions is you're in relationship, and so when somebody important to you sees that things have changed, what is that? What do they see? What does that mean to them? Very much a construction. What does that mean to them? And what does that mean to you that they have noticed this thing, this change? Um, is that a good thing? Let's look at the good things. Why does it matter to you what your partner thinks? And it's like, well, I want my partner to be happy. I want my parents to, to like me. I want them to be happy. I want them to enjoy life. I, I don't like it that they're feeling so troubled. So what does that mean to you? It just keeps going around and around and around in relationships and interaction. The interactional view, which is one of the early books of MRI, is very important to me. Because that's what we are, is through, it's not just through language. That's what some people are saying, that it's all, all through language. Language is important, but I think that emotional experience is also very, very important. Yeah, that connects well for me to uh, Wittgenstein and his language games, how it's woven into our everyday life and how just with a sentence, we have kind of feelings that come up and with the best hopes question, we have other feelings that when we talk about problems, for example, mm -hmm. and kind of how, how language and emotions are connected, holistic view. Totally. Yeah. And Elfie and I talked just uh, yesterday about this interactional view. And I think there's, or we think there are several kind of layers one is that we see solution focus as an interactional practice and kind of look at it this way. Then we do and ask questions that focus on interactions and mm -hmm. kind of the reciprocity. And then people go out and then they do something and interact differently with their environment. So different layers of the interaction view. And then for us, it's always important to also notice about what we're talking. Are we talking about solution focus practice as a description or are we talking about what we do? in a session or are we talking about what the client is doing in his life and all these perspectives are very much influenced by this interactional view and this kind of like you say systemic perspective very much so and i i take that layering one step further i think of relationship because i think relationship is different from interaction hmm. i can interact with almost anything or anybody but it's the relationship that i have with that person that gives the interaction meaning hmm. so if it's just somebody I meet at a store and they're doing something and I say, um, you know, do you think these are good oranges? I have a relationship with that person, but it's very superficial. Mm. It doesn't matter to me very much. I might take their words as advice and I might just say, oh, I don't agree with it. But if I ask my husband, what do you think of these oranges? Our relationship is very different. And so what he says has a very different meaning to me mm. and how we interact around that meaning mm. is very different. So I think that relationship is not just the interactional observable things, which are very important, but the meanings that people, if I had the patients to do microanalysis, I would take all that they're learning about interactions between therapists and clients. And I would have more interviews with the therapists 
and with the clients. One of my supervision favorite things to do is to watch a video and ask the therapist, what did that mean to you? Mm. Because that will affect, it's not just what you heard the client say, but what did it mean to you? Did it mean that they cared about something? Did it mean they were angry? What, what did it mean to you? And how did that affect you personally? Mm. Because that is a huge part of the next thing you do. And that's because we have a trusting relationship. I can do that with a supervisee and they can then think about what they do with their clients. And also how this, what they, what it means to them corresponds to their theory of what they do. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's okay for me that people use different approaches to therapy. I can supervise a lot of different approaches. Mm -hmm. There are some that I don't want to, I don't know them very well and I don't resonate with me at all, but it's more like, are you meeting your goals? Mm -hmm. Are you getting to where you want to go? Hearing you, I see you just invite them a lot to observe themselves carefully towards their preferred future. So it's just... And to, and to pay attention to what they think are the observations of others that help mm -hmm. them move towards their preferred, oh, well, I would see my father doing this, and what would that mean to you? Well, I think it would mean that he really does care about me. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then what would you do? How is he going to know that you know that it's happening? Mm -hmm. So it's it's not just the observation, it's the relationship you have with yourself. And you know, if you don't have a very good relationship with yourself, then what you're going to say is most likely going to be pretty negative. But if I can help tease out those aspects of your relationship with yourself that you do like, we can build on them, we can amplify them. Oh, I like that. And you're right now about to finish a new book. I hope I can finish it. <laughs> oh, <I'm... laughs> it's That's my preferred future is that it's finished. <laughs> my preferred future is that when I see you next time, I'll say, it's finished. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we, we can tell you now that we're very much looking forward to have the, oh, the you know, a version of your book in our hands, actually. So <laughs> do you have a deadline? I have a deadline. I have to turn it into the publisher in June. It's coming along well, except that every time I read something else that I want to reference in the book, then I think, oh, yes, Peter did tell me that. Or, <laughs> oh, I really liked what Alfie said. I really have to think about how I'm going to put that into the book. Or, you know, <laughs> so I, I have to, you know, put the blinders on and say, get it done. <laughs> There will always be more that you could do. Just get it done. <laughs> The good thing is I, I hear I can hear there is already the next book um, starting with finishing no, this one. No. No. <laughs> no. So what is your book about? Well, there are a lot of books on solution focused practices out there and many of them start with descriptions of solution focused brief therapy and then give descriptions of how it's done with people who are long-term users of the, of the mental health system or with children or with, you know, lots of different things. It's trauma. I mean, it's sort of like the basic ideas of solution focused aren't enough that people have to have specifics about, well, how do you use it with real problems or severe problems or whatever? And that doesn't fit my thinking. And I think that's partly because of my systemic training And people don't seem to recognize the importance of systemic thinking in the development of SFBT. It was so important to the MRI people. It was so important to INSU and Steve. Their training center was the Brief Family Therapy Center. It wasn't the solution-focused Brief Therapy Center. And their thinking went beyond families, but that's just so important. And what I see, the farther that we get away from the original ideas, 
And I think it's fine for the approach to evolve. But the further we get away, I hear people talking about it in a linear way. This is how you do it. How, so how do you do it with children? Well, you do it this way with children. How do you do it? Mm. And, um, and I don't hear the systemic part of it. And when I'm reading essays from people who want to be supervisors about their approaches to therapy, and they say, well, I use um, CBT and I use experiential therapy and solution-focused therapy. And I always want to have a conversation with them about that because what they're talking about mostly is that they add solution-focused ideas or practices, not ideas, but practices. So they say, I use the miracle question to help develop goals. I like the scaling question to help gauge progress, assess progress towards goals. And I think that's a limited view. So I wanted to bring it together. I really wanted solution-focused therapists to understand systemic thinking, and I want family therapists to understand solution-focused stance and thinking as well as practices. So that's what the book is, is an attempt. I don't know if it's going to be successful, but I'm trying to bring those things together Hmm. Hmm. to provide more context for both positions. I think both positions are good, the stance position and the practices position. But I hear people saying, well, I'm a solution-focused therapist. And when I listen, I know that, well, they use the practices, but they don't adopt the stance. Mm-hmm. Not in a judgmental way, but well, sort of, because they say I'm solution-focused, but well, not quite. It's, yeah. it's good that you use the practices because I believe in the practices. So there's a whole chapter on how to use the practices from a different perspective. So if you're a Bowen therapist, this is how you can also use solution-focused ideas. Mm, okay, that's cool. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to have your book <laughs> in my hands and yeah, to have I the am, time to sit down yeah. <laughs> and <enjoy> the reading. So <laughs> I'm in the editing stage. If you've ever done that, you know how it's like, oh dear, now I'm editing. Yeah. <laughs> so if there's one thing that our listeners should take away from our podcast today, what should that be? What could make the biggest difference for them? Um. There's so many that I could say, but one that I would like to say is to be mindful of your choices in conversation and in what you do, Um, the formulation, what do you want to keep, what do you want to ignore, what are you going to add, to think about what, what is it that I want and what's important to me as a therapist, as a supervisor, as a consultant, as a coach, as a client, to help people learn to use that practice. Mm. So I would say the challenge of the week would be just a few times, stop and think about what's happening that I made this choice, and then to be a little more mindful about a choice. It's like, okay, I'm going to slow myself down, and I'm going to think, what am I going to keep? What am I going to ignore? What am I going to add that will work towards my goal? Which means I have to think about my goal first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think back to a lot of my own parenting, and I think something that, that we did right was that we always put the relationship first. So I would say my goal ultimately is to keep this relationship. So I have to do something that maybe isn't going to be very much fun, but how can I do it in a way that will keep the relationship because that's my main goal. I love that. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm very much looking forward to this challenge. For me, it uh, for sure might be asking myself as a mother and partner of his family <laughs> what my goals are and to observe myself even more this week. Mm-hmm. I look forward to the challenge as well. <laughs> I have to say that one of the things I've thought about the two of you is that one of your challenges is how do you maintain a sense of self and your own needs while you are living in such a small space? I think about 
each of you, what am I going to do? One of my goals this week is to do something for myself. How can I do that in a way that does not negatively impact my partner and my daughter any more than necessary? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I, I love to ask myself these questions, actually. And, and last week, I went for a Lomi Lomi massage, and I'm still thinking oh. to do this this week again. So this is very inspiring. <laughs> Thank yes, you. yes. And for me, there's the ice hockey um, championships uh, quarterfinal will start in about 10 minutes. And <laughs> so we need to get off this message. And that's when you should go for your massage, Elfie. Yeah. He's going to be very busy with his As BB has, has a friend on the playground she now, does. it even is possible. Absolutely, it's possible. Thank you very, very much, Thorana, for this wonderful conversation. I'm very inspired and there are a lot of things I have to think about now. Thank you for that. And well, thank you. For our listeners, please let us know what inspired you and what you found out and also what questions you have. Thorana Nelson will be available on our website. You can ask her your questions. We are very much looking forward to hear what inspired you about what she said, about what we talked. And um, for that, please comment on our website on www www.sfontour.com slash podcast and then go to episode number 12. And, and I would add somehow that I would love to hear about how people respond to the challenge. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, please. That would, that would be wonderful. <laughs> your voice matters and your story might truly be the one which makes a difference for someone else. So please share your thoughts and ideas with us as they might encourage not only you and yourself by thinking about it and by writing about it, but also help others to keep on going their solution-focused journey. So please share with us. And if you want to keep up to date with our podcast and be informed as soon as a new podcast is published, go to our website and subscribe to our email feed or on iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TuneIn or Google Play. We're very much looking forward to next week and wish you all out there to have a wonderful week. And of course, for you, Rana, send regards to Victor. We're looking forward to talking to him next week. And uh, well, we are very much looking forward to see you in Boulder at the SFBTA conference at the latest. If you feel inclined to come back to Santa Fe for a while, please let us know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank we'll you. <laughs> thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>